0: morning god's good god it's been an awesome morning actually just sensing his presence and watching him work through different people and all through the congregation and seeing that we're all in this together and uh, it's a great comfort to me and uh the last few weeks have been going through uh Kind of a self evaluation on, it you know, just felt like that, you know, God would speak and I wasn't really paying attention like I used to or I wasn't taking it as seriously as I used to. And you'll notice the uh, title on your bulletin says Abandoned. And when I put it, that as a title, I knew that the first thing everybody would think was Is somebody getting abandoned? Am I getting left? And I walked in, first thing this morning, first person I saw looked at me and said, are we abandoned? And uh, because you know what, most of the time, anytime we're talking, we're primarily thinking about us, unfortunately. And I knew, when I, if I didn't clarify it on the title, if I didn't put be abandoned, that the natural thought would be, I'm abandoned, okay? I am not talking about that. You are not abandoned. So I don't care what else you hear this morning. God will not abandon you. He has never abandoned you. He's not going to, and he loves you, okay? So just for the record, I'm not talking about us being abandoned. What I'm talking about is, is being abandoned to him, where that's my only thought, that I am his, I've been bought with a price, I am his, and I am completely abandoned. And what I'm finding in my own life is I'm completely abandoned when I want to be, which is not really abandoned. It's uh, some form of idolatry, probably, and has pride involved. Uh, but I want to talk this morning about being abandoned, where there's a complete dependency on him, that there's no reservation. And in a funny way, we want to be like Job, who says, even if he kills me, I'm going to trust him, and I'll make my case to him. And I like the way the, the Living Translation puts it, it says, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. So I'll make my, it's kind of, it's kind of a defeatist attitude, I guess, but he says, I'll make my case to him. And we want to be, else, we want to be like that, because honestly, where else can we go? If you're his, you have no one else to go to. You can't go to your friends. You can't go to your family. You have to start with him. And if you don't do that, you're not abandoned to him. And I think for most all of us, our whole life is, a, is an up and down battle over who's in charge. An up and down uh, fight over who's going to get to decide what I do. And I, you can say you're abandoned, but I can tell you the first time you disobey, you're not abandoned. It doesn't work that way. And so, you know, three weeks ago, I think uh, Tim spoke on Jesus. And it's, it was, I was thinking of this, this week, this progression of, of speakers. Tim talked about Jesus. He gave us the model all through Scripture, who Jesus is, what he looks like. And uh, then... The next week, Carol gave us the two Adams. We're the screwy Adam. He was the good Adam. And how we're eventually going to look like the good Adam, that we're on that way. And then last week, Kevin was talking about the helpers, the journey towards being like the second Adam. And that we need to look for help. Because in the help is hope. And that God always brings people to you. to, To give you that hope. And so today... I'm going to say, all right, so you've made it there. Now what? And it's time to be abandoned to him. Whatever he wants. Whenever he wants. And it's, it's costly. We have to leave ourselves. And give up all rights to everything. I have no more rights. When I'm abandoned to him, I'm his. He gives me back what I can have, and he takes away what he doesn't want. But he always looks for my cooperation in that. He never just comes and takes it. And uh, have you ever uh, made a, a prayer or had a prayer with the Lord, and you were really serious, and he knew you were serious, and then you wanted to take it back, <laughs> and it was too late? Because once you give him permission, he will do it. But he needs that yes in your heart that says, okay, I'm ready. And so we have to give up our reputation. We have to give up our, our rights to a career, our rights to a family, our rights to everything. You cannot hang on to anything and be abandoned to him. Because he will tell you what the next thing is that you need to do. And Jesus said in Matthew ten thirty seven to 39, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And I realize that I'm looking for my life most of the time. I'm trying to put it in a nice package so I can present it back to him or to others. And he just tells me, when I do that, I'm going to lose it. Because we're all going to lose it at some point. But if we give that up for his life, you will never lose it. It's always there. If you love your family, then you're not worthy of him. I used to say, boy, that's hard. Because our natural negative tendency means that we have... Does that mean I have to hate my mother and father? No, it just means that in relation to how you love them, he's much greater. He gets preeminence on everything. And Dallas Willard puts it like this, and I don't know which book it came from. If you want, to, I'm sure Mr. Google knows. Uh, but he said, God's not trying to exclude you when he says that. He's not trying to divide and take you out and say... You know, I don't want your mother and father. I don't want you. What he's saying is if you don't position yourself this way, you're not going to make it. I'm the only one who can get you through. So if you don't love me more than them, there will be an end of what you can do. If you love him more than them, he says you can make it. And there's been times in all of our lives where we wanted to, we we had a hard time making it. I had breakfast. I had the privilege of having breakfast yesterday with a, a friend I've known probably 20, 25 years. And uh, he's a missionary in the Middle East. He's been there for several years. Uh, he speaks, he's brilliant. He speaks four or five languages. He's fluent in Arabic. He's just an amazing guy. Just a really great guy. He's got three kids. And so, you know, whenever I run into, the, he was... We met him in Belarus, and uh, whenever I run into guys like this, I always ask him, "How's your family? How's your kids? You know, are you doing okay?" Because I don't really, I, I understand what he's doing in the ministry. I don't really need to hear the report. I just want to know how he's doing. Um, and I asked him that, and he said, "Well, it doesn't really matter how I'm doing because God has called us to this, and we know it." And he's had that vision for more than 20 years. The first time I met him, he told me about that. And he's abandoned to it. And you know, I've talked to a lot of missionaries over the years that the kid, their kids were struggling, and so they left. And you know who bears the weight for that? The kids. They know they were the reason that they left. And so it, it haunts them. Because God takes care of everybody. You can't be start out abandoned and then just sell out when it gets difficult. It's going to get difficult. We already know that. It's, difficulties are not a problem. Our response to difficulties becomes the problem. Because it's always our response that determines God's intervention. And when you talk to the kids... They'll tell you. I feel bad that my mom and dad had to leave. I didn't know it would cause that. Because whenever you abandon. You abandon your abandonment. To God. Say that ten times. You. You switch everything. When you're abandoned. You're on a, you're on a path. It's not going to change. God's going to get you through. To exactly where he says he's going to take you. But if you jump off. Who knows where you're going to end up? And then probably end up mad at God. And there is a process to being abandoned. And it's going to take time. And he's going to identify everything in you that shouldn't be there. And so our main topic or our main passage for today is Luke 22, 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you. That he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. you know there's only a few places in Scripture where God uses two names: connect back to back. There's seven or eight. So we're going to go through a few of them. Abraham in Genesis 22:11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here am I. And that, that is right before God provides the sacrifice for Isaac. Significant. Because Abraham was completely sold out, he immediately heard his voice and responded. As a matter of fact, if you read the story, the angel's like, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> You're way too committed. I didn't think you'd go that far that fast. And he stops him and provides the, the ram in the thicket. The next one is Jacob in Genesis forty six, two, and God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And this is right before he goes to Egypt to see Joseph. And then we know the story that they were in captivity. And the family they were there and lived for four hundred I think it's about four hundred years after this calling. Then the third one is Moses in Exodus 3 4. So the Lord saw that he turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. You notice everybody's response? And when he gets called to lead them out of Egypt at that moment, for the Lord, and it was when Moses stopped to look at the bush and ponder it that God spoke. It got his attention, and he looked and then god spoke to him and i wondered you know do i walk by bushes where god's getting ready to speak the next one is samuel in first samuel 3 verse 10 now the lord came and stood and called as at other times samuel samuel and samuel answered speak for your servant hears and then he tells him that's when he's going to pronounce the judgment on eli's house which he had spoken before And it's right before he does this, and the reason was that uh, Eli was going to be punished was because he didn't take care of his kids. If you read the story, he let his kids do whatever they wanted, and they destroyed everything. (laughs) And it's interesting that Eli knew what was coming, because later in the chapter, Samuel uh, he gives Samuel permission to tell him everything that God had said, and don't hold anything back. And he actually says, don't hold anything back, or the same happened to you. And so, of course, Samuel's going to tell him everything. He tells him all of it. And then he says, um, It is the Lord. Let him do to me as he sees fit. And there's a resignation. When you're connected to God, there's an understanding and a resignation of his voice that some things are not debatable. If you're abandoned to him, he will be very specific. And he expects a specific result. And he he does it all through here. The next one is Martha in Luke 10. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. So she was confronted with her own works by Jesus. And then later in the story of Lazarus, we see in verse 21 of John 11... Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, if, if I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give it to you. So originally, she was all uptight. And by the time Lazarus passes, she's, she got it. She's like, yeah, if you'd have been here, you, ain't gonna die. you wouldn't have died. But I know even now, if you ask. And it's actually Mary who struggles with this more than Martha. Acts 9.4. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul is called to the Gentiles. And I don't know who said it originally, but uh, it's intriguing. The first time God speaks a name is to get your attention. The second time is to unleash a destiny. And it's only done in a few places. This was seven. And I wanted to ask you, has God ever called your name twice? Or did you ever hear it twice? Or have you ever heard it once? Because I know for me that there's things that He has spoken that I haven't obeyed. And my abandonment has limits. Which means it's not abandonment at all. It's preference. And the last one is our text for today. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And Peter basically says in the next verse, no way. I'm ready to go to prison and die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, the rooster won't crow today before you have denied me three times. And Jesus knew he wasn't going to make it 24 hours after that great declaration, like, I'll die for you. And he couldn't even handle a 10-year-old girl. it's important to note here that Jesus calls out to Peter. He's already been through his own sifting. Jesus had been. Because he had just come from the garden where he was sifted. And you say, well, Jesus wasn't sifted. Well, yeah, he was. He did want to die. And that was the ultimate reckoning for him with the Father, where he laid down everything completely at that point forever. I mean, he always had. He'd always been submitted to God, and God had always shown him what to do. But if, if you'll notice the walk, each time it got a little more costly. And this one was going to be the biggie. And Jesus knew it, and he still didn't want to do it. Because three times he says, don't make me die. But not my will, your will be done. And he goes through with it. And then he comes into Peter... And gets that. I'm sure that was encouraging. From one of his main guys. (laughs) Sifting isn't just from the enemy. God will sift us as well. Because everybody needs to know who you really are. And sifting will show you exactly who you are. And with all the, you know, just a side note. With all the um, recent recants of faith and other issues that we have in the body. Uh, the the tendency is to think negatively of that and think, oh, it's horrible. Well, yeah, it's horrible, and we should pray for them. And it doesn't negate the good of their ministry. But there's also a positive side and that is we're being cleansed. We're being exposed. None of them are shut out of the kingdom forever. All they have to do is repent. So that identification and locating of somebody is God's mercy. Than to let you keep going in, in oblivion to what's really happening. And so there, it's not always negative, but it's always painful. I've never, I don't know of anybody that gets sifted and, and worked on that doesn't feel it. So there's a few points to be made here. First, Jesus tells him he's going to be sifted like wheat, but he didn't say that he was praying against it. He just said, I pray that you won't fail. Why wouldn't he pray against it? I think it's because if you can't stand while you're being sifted, you'll never make it when the fight comes. You'll never make the war if you can't deal with the sifting. And so Jesus knows it's necessary for him to go through what he's going to have to go through. And it doesn't do any good for God to protect you from the process. Or was it the, I think Tim used the the phrase, lawnmower parents, where they just run interference and mow everything out of the way for their kids. God won't do that. It's actually not loving to do that you got to get strong, and you're not going to get strong if everybody does it for you or if God does everything for you. He says, I'll be with you. But he doesn't always say, I'm going to do it for you. We have to learn to, to stand during the process. And there's always a process to possess what you want in him. So during worship, I noticed the last several weeks, we're singing and you can feel the energy in the auditorium. You can feel. Everybody wants his presence. And when we're together, we kind of feed off of that with each other. (laughs) But there's a process. And what it does is it rekindles, you know, the worship times rekindle the dead vision in you. It rises up where you begin to remember the things that he's spoken and you've forgotten. Or the things that he's spoken and you don't want to do when you're alone. But you'll do it with the group. And in a a sense, we harden our own hearts to his presence. We become church hard ourselves. You know, one of the worst things a missionary can do is give half the message. And get people to think that they're okay if they don't receive the message. And then the next missionary that goes in there, it's impossible. We call them church hard. We did it all over the former Soviet Union. Where you go to any city in the 90s and you could get huge crowds. Until they figured out all they had to do was raise a hand to get a free Bible. And then they could go sell it and get their vodka. And so you'd read newsletters of all these thousands and thousands of converts. And the country never got any better. That's impossible because if they're really converted it'll change. I mean you can't you don't stay the same you become a new creature. And we do that. God he's much more patient than I am. <laughs> I think I'd get rid of all of them including me. <laughs> Reminds me of a Monty Python skit where they you know the the guy answering the questions you know, throws people off a bridge, and then he can't answer the question, so he throws himself off the bridge. (laughs) So that's kind of what it looks like to me. All right, so the process, I did some looking at what threshing or sifting looks like, and it's usually a three-step process. First one is threshing, where they pile all the grain up on the floor and then stomp it with an ox or a cow or run over it with a sled to smash it and break all the husks and the and the stuff off of the, the kernel of wheat. So you're left with this pile of broke, broken stuff that now has to be sorted. And then they, on a practical side, God needs to show you what's in there. He already knows. So when the breaking comes, when the, the threshing in your life comes, it will release the grain and show you clearly what's the husk and the chaff so that you can deal with it. Until then, it's all wrapped together. You know, it's, it's only when when God squeezes me and I yell that I begin to see what's actually coming out. And that's really, you know, Jesus, was Peter was just being smashed to find out what comes out. Not for Jesus' sake, but for Peter's sake. Because it's not long after that, he's the main preacher at Pentecost. So there's, in the process, it will start with threshing. And then the next is winnowing, where I guess they get a fork and they throw it up in the air and the weight of the grain is more than the, the weight of the husks and the weight of the husks is more than the chaff. And so it kind of, as long as there's a breeze, it'll separate into three piles. I think is how they do it. And then the lastly is the, sieve, the sieve, sieve, sieve. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. I thought I knew it, and then I read it again, and it just went. But that's the finer cleaning. That, and that's where they get out the weed seeds, which I thought was a very interesting way to put it. There's things in me that are going to produce weeds that has to come out as well before you can use it for flour, before it's ready to make bread. It also gets out the dirt that came off the threshing floor and any small pebbles that happen to be in there. And Peter would have known this because that was where he lived. And he knew at the market you get flour with pebbles and dirt and little pieces of husk in it. And the the way uh, Graham Cook says it is, I like it best. And this isn't a direct quote because I was in the meeting. I didn't watch it, so I don't know. I'm trying to remember. But it was basically that while you're basking in the glow of God's presence and enjoying him, he throws you in a room, turns out the lights, and beats the daylights out of you. (laughs) And I thought, that pretty well sums it up. (laughs) Secondly, Jesus said he was praying for him that his faith wouldn't fail. So Jesus is interceding. He's interceding for us as well, right? Romans 8.34, it says he also makes intercession for us. And Hebrews 7.25 says, uh, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is always praying for you. But you still have to choose. And clearly here, Peter fails. Now, you could say, well, Jesus meant in the overall sense. And maybe he did. But he sure had a hiccup along the way. And he failed. And the reason I think that he does fail is because Jesus then goes on to say, when you come back. In other words, I know this is going to be painful. You're going to walk away. When you come back the brothers. I'm not sure if Peter ever got it until after it was over. Because that's right after that that he says, I'll die for you. And can you imagine what Jesus is thinking? Having been through what he's been through, and now he's, one of his top guys is flaked out on him. And Jesus knows he's not going to make it 24 hours. And I always, I started to wonder just this last week, how much hurt does Jesus endure watching me? How many times does he do something for me or show me something and I treat it like it's nothing? Like it's not precious? Like it didn't cost him everything? And then you multiply that by 7 billion disobedient people that he paid for, died for. And we wonder why we can't get anything changed. And it's because we're living by preference. We're not living by conviction. There's a point where we say, that's enough. And I'll take it from here. And it, it, during, in the 70s, I think the early 70s, the Supreme Court had a case where they were trying to... They had to define Convictions. Because it was a, a religious liberty issue. And they said that the constitution only, only protects those who are actually living by conviction. So they had to define what a conviction was. So that they could decide when to rule for or against. I think that's the, it's definitely the layman's version. But they came up with five areas in your life. And they said if your family causes you to change at any time. Your story, or what you will or won't do, then you're living by preference, not conviction. They said if your friends threaten to leave you, make fun of you, slander you, and you change, it's not conviction, it's preference. They said if you are threatened with the loss of work because of your stance and you change, It's a preference and not a conviction. If you get threatened with jail and you change because of that, then it's preference. And the fifth test was death. If you change in the face of death, it's a preference. And that's a pretty strong stance. I always wondered how you would test them on the death one because then they'd be like, yep, they had a conviction. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying, it's, it's a full-out abandonment to him. You cannot change. Actually, in, I think it's Psalm 15, he, says, he talks about He who the, the, the people who can stand in God's presence. And in one of the verses, I think it's in verse 4, it says, He who swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. And he's talking about integrity. If you say it, do it. Don't change just because it's convenient. And I think that's why a good reason to be quiet most of the time until you figure out exactly where it's going. Because every time you speak too quick, you're going to get in trouble. And we have lots of examples in the scriptures as well. Jesus said he came to bring division. To actually identify you and us from the world. When he changes you, you become an alien to this system. And you're, you're now a citizen of heaven. You're just here doing his work. So the question would be, to you and to me, is your commitment to Christ based on conviction or preference? And I can't answer that for you. You have to answer that. Because if you change at any point during the process, including, including, the the sifting of you, it's a preference. If pain causes you to change, it's a preference. It doesn't mean it's not painful. It doesn't mean it's easy. It just means if it causes you to change in any way your beliefs about God and his word and his kingdom, then you're living by preference. And I notice every time I'm tempted to compromise, most of the time nobody will know but me. It's in here. So I know, but it makes me very insecure with the Lord. Because I'm, I'm acting like I want him to speak. But if he does, I'll be exposed as a fraud. And a lot of times I'm not hearing him because I'm a fraud. I'm not being real. And he knows it. And it wouldn't be loving for him to tell me things when I'm not completely abandoned to him. If I can't sit in his hand and take whatever comes... I'm not abandoned to him, and I have no right to expect him to do anything for me. I'm not talking about the promises of God. I'm talking about you as a disciple. As we go deeper with him, there are, there are bigger requirements out of you. He's going to show you what it means to give everything. That's the goal. And when we get to where we don't care... Then we'll see some miracles. Then I'll see some in my life. It's so easy to dumb down the Word of God into a social network where I I compromise for friendship or I compromise for acceptance. I don't want to be looked at as too radical, too weird. I want to be liked, just like everybody does. And you know what I've noticed is the more that you, the closer you get to him, the more people will honor you with their mouth and hit you in the back. Because they're a little bit afraid of you, but they don't want to be like you. And the only way to do that is to bring, that, bring you down to where they're comfortable in your presence. You know, it's like when I got saved, my friends were with me for about 10 days. And then it was a little bit too much conviction for them. Four days, they tried to get me to go back. And that wasn't working. So are you committed to Christ based on conviction or preference? Because if you quit at any point, you weren't abandoned and it was a preference. And it isn't until you've made your commitment to God that God acts. He's not going to act just because you give it lip service. It was in the desert when Jesus was being tempted in Matthew 4. It says, after the temptation that the devil left him, the angels came and ministered to him. They weren't with him through the temptation. They were waiting. And at that point, they came. And then there's um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3. Where the king gives the edict that you're supposed to worship him. They say, we're not going to do that. And they say, they're talking to the king. And in verse 17 of Daniel 3, they say, you know, king, he could deliver us from the fire. But he for sure will deliver us from your hand. But we will not worship you. So they were militant in their stance, but but submitted in their posture. Which is a perfect picture of integrity. It means you can kill me, but I'm not going to do it. They weren't fighting. They just made their stand. And then the priests in uh, Joshua 3, it wasn't until their feet got in the water that the waters parted. They didn't stand on the edge and wait for the water to go. It says, when their feet hit the water, then the water stood up. Okay, God's going to lead you to the place of a commitment, but you have to act. If you don't act, it's not going to, it's not going to happen. And you know, a lot of us are praying for answers to things. And the answers are waiting for us. They're just sitting there. God sent them a long time ago. And he's saying, okay, be committed. Do something that shows me that you're committed to this. Get through it. And then I'll minister to you. Then I'll give you that. But he's not, just, he's not just a dog and pony show where he's just going to just do stuff because he can. Now, he does take us where we're at. I understand that. Don't hear me say that he won't ever answer a prayer if you're not committed and ready to jump off a bridge or something. Because that's not the point. The point is that we need to be completely abandoned to him. And the prayer, the answers to my prayers. Can you imagine if a lot of the answers to our prayers are just sitting out here? Waiting for some kind of a show of commitment to him. Not just the, you know, what we see. Like I have no idea what's in your heart. I don't even want to know what's in your heart. You don't want to know what's in my heart. But God knows. And he's waiting for that moment where you actually abandon yourself to his life in you. And then the answers come. Because when you're operating at that level of relationship with him, there's no question who it is. And you're not tempted to take the credit for it. It, it, it would cause you to be proud if you didn't, if you didn't abandon yourself before you came and uh, rescued you. And we've we got to remember too, what's the goal? The goal is not a happy life. The goal is to expand a kingdom. And to live for a king who provides everything we need. Tells us everything he's going to do before he does it. And then he equips us to be able to do it. And then he ministers to us after we've done it. And then we get to do it again. And then we go to a potluck and tell everybody all of our stories. How great it was. There's one other place where a name is used twice. And it's when Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he says, Father, Father. And I wonder, feeling that abandoned, literally abandoned, because he was so abandoned, that if he wasn't trying to remind the father of what he had told him, because he was completely alone. And he was reminded, he was trying to remind the father, don't forget me. And of course, that set the stage for all of us. The kingdom was released at that moment. And he was completely abandoned to the Father. And when he did that, he made a way for all of us. And when you completely abandon yourself to the Father, he will make a way that will release people everywhere in salvations and healings. And you'll see the power of the Spirit work in ways that I don't think we've ever seen yet. There's no such thing as a partial commitment. That doesn't exist. There's no such thing as partial abandonment. You're either abandoned or you're not. In Hebrews, it's called an evil heart of unbelief. And what this is, what this does, is it brings you to a crossroads from which you can't go back. And then you decide whether you're going to walk in faith or in unbelief. And Jesus calls it, or Hebrews calls it, a evil heart of unbelief revelation he says if you're lukewarm i'm going to spew you out of my mouth and that's to a church that's not to the world just make a commitment and abandon yourself to him oswald chambers says this the moment we recognize our complete weakness and dependence on him will be the very moment that the spirit of god will exhibit his power so when god speaks What comes out of you? And I'm praying for all of us it's a resounding yes. Like we sang earlier. That it's a unqualified yes. Do to me whatever you feel like. And at that point you become untouchable. And nothing can harm you. Without your you've already given permission. You're not your own, you're his. I'm his he can do whatever he wants I I hate saying that out loud but it's true because I know what it's going to mean next week (laughs) but I want to be somebody who says yes no matter what and it's not a question of going to missions or going this or doing ministry It's 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 just unqualifying any acceptance of what he says to you and it could be something as simple as don't eat that Don't drink that. Don't go there today. Whatever it is. The more you practice yes, the easier it is to say yes. Because you'll start to experience the fruit of a disciplined life. Which is what we're all needing, is discipline. So, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time we've had together. I pray that whatever... You have your breath on, will be surrounding and in us the rest of this day and tonight. That it will produce fruit, that it will do exactly what you designed it to do. If anything was not from you, I just pray, Lord, that you'd help us forget it and move on. And, Lord, we just want to be a people that says yes. We just want to be a people. And I ask by your Holy Spirit right now, will you remind all of us of the times you've spoken and we didn't listen, or we didn't agree to it, or we weren't abandoned to you. And would you show us what that's going to cost and what it looks like? And then give us the grace to say yes to anything you want. Lord, we love you and thank you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.